How's it going, folks? This is Captain Cam with Blackbird Guide Services, and I will be your host for today's episode of Eastern Current. And today, our guest is Captain Dylan Barker, who I've had on the podcast before, uh, probably about a year ago. And instead of talking about fly fishing for redfish and photography, in this episode, we talk a lot about conservation. Dylan is a really good source of knowledge when it comes to conservation and the analytics that go behind it. So we talk a lot about that. It's something that I'm very interested in and, and passionate about. And I, we both think it's just really important to be knowledgeable in the aspect of, of conservation and, and the practices that go behind it. So hopefully you guys find this one interesting and we will talk to you soon. I've teamed up with Florida Fishing Products to outfit my guide service with their spinning reels, braided line, and fluorocarbon leader, and I'm looking forward to giving you some real-world feedback on their gear. I've been enjoying their Osprey CE for all my light tackle, redfish, and speckled trout, and Resolute for my beefier setups for big reds, cobia, tarpon, and jacks. I'm looking forward to helping further their mission to equip anglers to fish better, which couldn't align closer with our values here at Eastern Current. Be sure to check out their website, floridafishingproducts.com, or ask about them at your local tackle shop. If you're like us here at Eastern Current, your boat trailer takes a beating. That's why we want to tell you about Coastal Trailer Repair, located here in Wilmington, North Carolina. At Coastal Trailer Repair, they strive to bring quality work at a reasonable price, specializing in trailer hubs, springs, and all things electrical and wiring. If you have an issue with your trailer, look no further than Coastal Trailer Repair to get you back on the road. You can find their information in the podcast show notes. Captain Dylan Barker, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How have you been? I've been doing really good. Been doing, um, been busy. Like we were talking about a little bit before we started recording the, when I'm not busy with fishing, I'm, I'm busy with two little girls, uh, that are just constantly keeping me on my toes. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, whether it's some sort of illness or just trying to keep them entertained. Yeah, man, between guiding and that, that is a, is a busy life you <laughs> yeah, got there. It is. I'm, uh, it's one of those things where people are like, oh, you know, just it goes by so fast. I'm like, when? When does it go by fast? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, well, Dylan has, uh, a little bit of a, a change of lifestyle a little bit. I mean, at least as far as location is concerned, last time we had you on the podcast, which was probably what, six months ago, somewhere in there, somewhere six to eight months ago, six to eight months ago. And, uh, you were living in South Carolina and now you're in Florida, right? Yes. Um, I moved about a month and a half ago down here to, to Florida. I'm in St. Petersburg, so right outside of the Tampa Bay area. Um, you know, I'm from South Carolina, and this is a pretty big change for my girlfriend and I, but we're really excited. Um, it's been a blast so far, you know, getting out and seeing fish uh, in the water and not having to look through chocolate milk to find them. <laughs> Um, but yeah, man, it's a, you know, it's a huge change, uh, but 
we thought about it for a while. We visited a couple times, and it felt it felt like the right move at the right time. Um, you know, definitely battled with not wanting to be a part of the issue here, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Between overfishing, and I'm not guiding right now. Um, you know, I I think it's unethical to uh, m- just be able to move to an area and all of a sudden market yourself as someone who should be an expert as, you know, a guide should be in an area. Um, so I'm not going that route. That doesn't mean I'll ever not guide again uh, at all. But right now I'm enjoying learning this water, something new, and, and getting on the front of the bow for the first time in a long time. Yeah. Honestly, um, I have fished more these past three weeks than I fished in the last two years in Charleston, easily, uh, being on the bow of the boat. That sure, is. sure. Uh, so, yeah, that's, it, it's, a, it's a fun change. Uh, it's, it's cool, you know, it's exciting. And I'm really excited for tarpon season to roll around. Honestly, yeah, can't I was come, about to say. Man, can't come soon enough. I know. Are there, uh, I'd be curious to talk to you a little bit about, uh, before we move on to our main subject, the differences in, uh, and this could be a whole separate podcast, so we, we don't have to really beat this to death, but being a, a avid fisherman and a, and a guide in South Carolina and then moving to somewhere like Florida, are you like, oh my God, this is amazing? Or is it still like, I mean, obviously South Carolina is really good too, but, um, you know, the abundance of different species, I guess, isn't quite the same. Are, are you like, this is the best thing ever? Or are you, um, is it still, I'm sure it's still challenging. I know, I know it's still challenging, but in, I assume in different ways, but what is that like from, um, an angler's perspective, moving from South Carolina to Florida and having these different species to target? Well, it is a completely different change. Like it's like the systems, everything. And you got to remember, it's even a more drastic shift for me because I'm going from the East Coast tide to a Gulf Coast tide. Um, the tides in the Gulf Coast are completely different than what happens on the East Coast of the country. Um, they are harder to get the hang of. They are extremely wind dependent, mm-hmm. and uh, they are not as high. So, for example, the high tide this morning when I fished was like a foot and a half of water. And they got the low tide got down to half a foot of water. It doesn't sound like a lot of water, but man, is, the, is there a lot of water that moves out of the Tampa Bay uh, every day? Now it's not a six foot tide swing, and it's not consistent. Um, in Charleston, in the Low Country, you can pretty much you know pin it down from day to day. Like okay, the tide is lower than it's supposed to be. It looks like with the wind, the next two days it's going to continue to stay low. Here, it's a bit harder. And I know there's ways to pin it down. I just haven't done it enough. I haven't learned it all the way yet. But that's been a big challenge. And because, you know, obviously, the reason I brought that up, tide affects fishing extremely. <laughs> and um, so that's been the biggest challenge. Now, I will say, um, I wouldn't have moved here if I didn't love it fishing here. Mm-hmm. You know, hands down. Um, that doesn't mean I don't like fishing in Charleston. But everything has its give and take. The water here is crystal clear. I mean, compared to what I would see on a daily basis. I mean, this is like looking straight through glass for me. Um, you know, I can see fish from so far out now mm-hmm. and that's awesome. Um, and there's multiple species, right? So I run into snook, tarpon and redfish all in the same day. 
uh, compared to what you might see in, in Charleston, which is only going to be redfish. Mm-hmm. But they're so much harder to get you to fly. Um, I mean, I've heard that. For example, man, I mean, I went out not so long ago. Gosh, we had shots of probably 10 redfish, 10 or 11 redfish, like good shots at red. Um, we only brought two to the boat that day. Um, and they all had great looks. But, I mean, we're talking fish going straight up to a fly, looking at it and just rejecting it like a permit would. Mm. Um, the Tampa Bay fishery is extremely pressured. These fish get the crab beaten out of them uh, constantly. Um, so it, it it's harder. It's a much harder fishery. Um, and also it's clear water. So they just, they can just see you, yeah. you know, you genuinely have to make a 60 foot cast, these fish and lead them by 10 feet and then don't move the fly. It's, it's very different, but, um, like I said, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm loving it. Um, I'm still catching plenty of fish. It just, you got to work for it a little more. Um, there was plenty of fish even this morning I saw on the boat. I was joking with who I was with and I was like, Yep, that would have been eating Charleston. Oh, yeah, that one would have been eating Charleston. <laughs> Making jokes because, you know, the, the fish could come within 10, 12 feet of the boat in Charleston. As long as you put the fly where you're supposed to put it, they're going to eat it. Right. I will say, I thought it was, I think so far in my experience here, and this might be controversial, I don't know, I've been able to find fish in Tampa easier than I could in Charleston. Um, I don't know if that's controversial or not uh that's just my experience that i've had so far i've been able to find a lot of redfish here uh now in charleston when you found the redfish you kind of found all the redfish i felt like in one area but mm-hmm. yeah it's just different completely different fisheries yeah 100%. do they stock red fish in uh tampa bay not to my knowledge um, they do in some parts of florida right yeah, I don't. I don't think they do. Um, I don't out. know either. Um, but yeah, I, I'm always curious about stocking efforts for redfish and and you know what difference, mm-hmm. like how much of a difference does that make, and how many fish are they putting in, and and so on and so forth. Um, so. I don't know. It's always um, interesting to the, me. The only data I can find is that stocking, they stock between 2000 and 2004. Red, they stock redfish in Tampa Bay. Gotcha. I'm not sure if they've done it since then or not, but that's the only direct FWC data I can find right now. Um, now, you know, Florida has one of the strictest redfish regulations out there so you know they have actually they have different regulations from place to place i think actually there's tons of different uh they break the state down into regions yep and um i think it varies from place to place yeah and it's the vessel limit that varies from place to place because it's always like the slot is still 18 to 27 Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one fish, for example, uh, like in the panhandle, it's one fish per person, but it's a four fish vessel limit. But if you go down to, uh, the keys, it is still one fish per person per day, but it's only two fish per vessel. 
Interesting. So they, and they actually have, you know, marked like lines throughout the state. And there are one, two, three, like nine different regions. So it's all, there's a lot size and Florida is always going to stay the same, but it's going to be different from place to place, how much you can keep. Same thing for Tampa Bay, 18 to 27 inch, um, slot, uh, but one fish per person, two per vessel. So, you know, they, Florida does a really good job of, of keeping track of the population mm-hmm. and then determining what needs to be changed to keep these fish healthy. Um, I think out of the entire Southeast region, you know, when, when we talk about redfish as a sport fish, Florida's done the most to protect them out of any other state. And I, I think that's pretty evident from just slot limits alone. You know, uh, they have the strictest keep and take limit. You can do that. Um, but Florida's also identified that they make all their money from the water, like the revenue they create from that. And, you know, redfish is the number one game fish in the entire Southeast. It's not even close. Um, and we're talking inshore species, right? Uh, I'm not even touching offshore, of course, but when we're talking inshore game fish, redfish dominate from Texas to Virginia. Yep. I'd agree with that. This kind of dovetails nicely into uh, what we're really mainly going to talk about, which is which is conservation, and um, uh, the th- what you were talking about with Florida and how they have different regions. That makes this is my, of course, my personal opinion, but that makes so much more sense to me than than like a statewide deal because. For instance, here in North Carolina, we have, you know, very varying sizes of marsh in different regions. Um, And there's some areas that have very little marsh. There's some areas that have kind of medium-sized marsh. And there's some areas that just have a massive area where, uh, where fish can spawn, where they can you know, do their thing. And the, the massive area that I'm talking about is Pamlico sound, which is just an absolutely enormous estuary. And it would make all the sense in the world to say, you know, there's different redfish restrictions in a place like that. than there is, let's say from Wrightsville beach up to, uh, you know, Swansboro, uh, because that whole area, and I I know you're probably not super familiar with the North Carolina coast, uh, because you really have (laughs) no reason to be, but that whole area is just essentially one kind of small strip of marsh. Um, You have the beach, and then you have, uh, you know, a sliver of marsh behind that beach, and then you have the intercoastal waterway, and then you kind of have, you know, uh, inland creeks and in, in inland marshes, which generally aren't very large, um, but that you know the diameter of that strip going down the state of North Carolina is pretty thin, uh, and, and it's just it it doesn't make a lot of sense for the restriction for the regulations to be the same in a very small area than it does in a place like Pamlico Sound, in, in my opinion, um, because you know, those redfish don't, yes, they will leave, but they generally are going to come back 
until they get to that size when they're going to leave for good. Right. I mean, absolutely. And so when you're taking a fish out of the system, that fish is, you know, you know, I mean, yes, it will be replaced at some point, but you know, that that's not a migratory fish. So like you're not getting a new push of fish at, you know, at like you would speckled trout in my opinion. So when you take a, you know, especially in, let's say, the winter and the spring, at least here when we have redfish that are really schooled up, if you absolutely hammer those fish for, you know, multiple times and other people are hammering them multiple times and you take, a, you know, everyone's keeping fish, then, like, that that's a lot of your summer fish now that are gone. It, yeah, and, you know, you also have to account you know, you brought up a point that I like to talk people through. You said, you know, that fish will end up being replaced. Um, and a lot of these regions in the Southeast, these fish aren't being replaced at the rate they're being taken out. Um, like not even close. Being on the water day in and day out throughout the season, our boats take a beating. Whether we need fiberglass work, new non-skid, hole painting, rigging, and electrical, or full-blown custom restoration, Brock Boatworks has you covered. Specializing in high-end skiffs, bay boats, and center consoles, their attention to detail and customer service ensures that you have the work done right the first time so you don't have to get it done again. You can find their information in the podcast show notes. Tell tell me a little bit more about that. So, like, do you you have an idea of, like, how quickly these fish are reproducing and, you know, kind of data data like that? So I'm going to use Louisiana as an example here. Okay. In the 2022 stock assessment in Louisiana, uh, they basically determined that they have extreme overfishing and poor spawning success. Uh, they were determined that only 20% of all of Louisiana's redfish are surviving to sexual maturity. 20% of all the fish in Louisiana, redfish, are surviving to make more fish. It's not that That's many. Like insanely low. Now, you're not really, you're never going to have a 100% rate. You're, that's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to have... Yeah, that's not yeah how it definitely not. It's just not how life works. So 20% is low. That is low. Especially for um, an area that is, you know, Louisiana, there's no, there's barely any limits at all. Um, and that's a whole fight that's going on. You can keep one bull, you can keep bull redfish in Louisiana right now. Yep. <laughs> um, and those are sexually mature fish that shouldn't be touched because it's taking away from the breeding fish. Um, so that's just one example. Um, I, you know, we're waiting on the, there's going to be a new stock assessment in 2024 going down the East coast. So I'm really interested to, and that, you know, that's a federal thing. Uh, the stock assessment is federal. This isn't the state conducting this stuff. They have strict guidelines. They have to follow from year to year for it to be true scientific data. Mm-hmm. Um, 
this isn't coming, you know, if you're like FWC is biased or whatever, it's like, it's not coming from them. You know, this is, this is something completely different. These are scientists just doing their job completely separate from this. They have no skin in the game when it comes to, uh, you know, your local politics really at all. Um, unfortunately to, to that same note, a lot of these stock assessments, like I said, they have to test the same spots from year to year. Uh, a lot of the spots they'll go test on that fish. Or they do have all the fish, as you know, in, like you said, in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, fish, redfish tend to stay in one area pretty heavy. Um, so if you go test this one creek where they spawn every year, no matter what, even if they get the crap beat out of them, there's going to be fish there. Let's say there's a school of 300 fish there, and every year there's a school of about around 300 fish. Well, they come back from the stock assessment and they go, it's, it's so healthy. It's, it's, been, it's the healthiest it's ever been. Um, it's just as healthy as it was 10 years ago. But right. no other fish in that same sound at all. Maybe all the fish, you know, that, maybe that's just the safe spot where these fish have been going and the population has dwindled. There's no way to count all the fish in the ocean. It's just not possible. You, <laughs> even with the way science, it's just not possible right. to get a true stock assessment. Um, and I'm just giving both sides of the coin here. Um, I want my biggest thing is having people just be informed on what's happening. Um, it, unfortunately, it does get political in some areas, and we can get into that later. Um, but for the most part, most of these scientists want to do good work, and they want to make sure you know it's their job to keep the fishery healthy. Like you got to realize, most of these people want the fishery to be just as healthy as you are or as you do. Um, but they're, you know, they're bound by, they have a boss and their boss is a boss. His boss is boss. And that bill has to go through legislation. Um, and so the second you have to involve all that stuff, things come to a halt pretty quick. That doesn't mean you can't make any change, but it definitely makes it harder. It's not just like, well, why can't you guys change it? Well, a lot of these places wishes they could change it to what, you know, a way lower limit, but it's just not possible. Uh, you can't just snap your fingers and change it. It's a long battle. For sure. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, North Carolina, for sure, it's, it's very political when it comes to uh, fisheries management. Um, and I think, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, we, we only have a one fish limit. There is a slot limit or a slot size. Um, and I don't know exactly when that was put into place. But I do think that surely has had to help. Um, but uh, uh, along the same lines, you know, we still have, we still have commercial gill netting. We still have, you know, rec recreational people that, um, you know, keep their limits every time they go and, uh, which is totally fine to, to some degree. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, you got to, look at the fishery and say what's best for the fishery and not for me. Um, Absolutely. So it's, you know, it's hard to say cause you know, obviously I'm a guide. We go out and <laughs> catch fish and given, you know, I'd say 90% of the time I'm releasing the fish. Uh, there is those times where we do keep fish and I, and I think, you know, that, you should be able to keep fish. This is this is a 
this is the battle I always have in my head. It's like kind of like what we were talking about before we, we before we started the podcast. It's it's not, it's everybody's water. It's the citizens of North Carolina, the citizens of the United States is, uh, you know, they have the right to go out there and do what they want to do as long as it's within, you know, legal grounds. Um, Absolutely. 100%, you know, and that is something that I tell people all the time. Like, I, I want to protect this thing so everyone can use it. The, the person who lives up in Boone, North Carolina, has the same amount of right, voting right, and, and public right to the water that you do as a captain. Correct. Hands down. Yeah. It's the same amount. It, your vote does not matter any more than theirs, and it never should, and it never will. And I truly believe in that, and I want people to keep fish. I, I, man, that is the number one argument I get in all the time. I don't keep any red fish. But because I see an issue with it, I see a population issue that needs to be solved. Um, but I want the I want the population to be healthy, so you can take home red fish. Sometimes the regulations and things need to be changed and adjusted. So five years down the road, we have a healthy fishery where you we can start taking again, where where things can be taken out of it, and it's not going to kill it, right? It's not going to just destroy the whole environment and, and the ecosystem. Um, now I'm not saying that's the point or we're not at that point, but almost every state on the East coast has seen a decline in their fisheries and specifically redfish. Uh, it, I mean, South Carolina has been on the decline only, only recently has it slowly crept up just a little bit according to DNR. Um, but it's been on the decline for like a decade or more. Do you, um, uh, in your personal opinion, do you think that's mainly mainly due to uh, fishing pressure, or do you, is there other outside influences that are um, affecting redfish populations? Well, there's always outside influences. I mean, there's always going to be outside influences. If we got rid of the number one influence on a fishery is the water quality. We not even talking about people who fish it or take from it or whatever water quality. Mm-hmm. We are horrible to our water as humans. Every kind of runoff, every kind of like just you know a golf course for example has so many chemicals on it that run off into the water. You have they did a study, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust released a, a you know a groundbreaking study proving that there was pharmaceuticals in redfish throughout the entire state, not a single redfish they tested across the entire state did not have pharmaceuticals in it. Every single one did. And we're talking about from the panhandle of the Keys to Jacksonville. They tested everywhere. Every every single fish had more than one different pharmaceutical in it. That's from the water. How does that happen? Our water filtration systems aren't good enough. They have not been updated in years. So I'm... I'm real um, pretty oblivious to like pharmaceuticals and fish, but the first thing that my mind goes to, which is terrifying, and I hope that this isn't true, but I have a I have a feeling you might prove me wrong. But um, 
pharmaceuticals in a species like redfish, my fear would be that it, at some point it makes that fish infertile. Is that a possibility? Uh, I, I'm not a scientist. Um, nothing I have read has pointed towards that. Okay. No ETT scientists I've talked to have said anything like that. I don't think that means it's not true, but I, I'm pretty strict on sticking to what I have factual. And I can tell you or anyone, you know, straight up, like this is just something that's happened. Now I would assume in my own opinion, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like I would assume that, you know, some of these drugs are that make it into them can, can do that. I don't see why that wouldn't. Yeah. Um, that was, like, I, mean, I don't know why just when I heard, cause I, I read about that study very briefly whenever it came out and I was like, Oh my God, this is going to make fish infertile. <laughs> and I was like, that would be really bad. Um, so I, what is, what is like the main fear of, I mean, obviously that it can't be good for the fish, but is there a main fear from the, or, or information about the study that came out with the, with the pharmaceuticals being in fish other than just, Hey, you, the fish have pharmaceuticals in them. Was there anything that they were like worried about other than, I mean, obviously that's worrisome, but was there a reason that that was worrisome? Yes. So we got to think about it this way, right? People read that and go, dang, redfish have pharmaceuticals in them. Like that is true. What we can infer from this, that means our drinking water that we get has pharmaceuticals in it. That means every other fish in the ocean, probably inshore, I have no idea how offshore fish are affected. Inshore fish probably have all have pharmaceuticals in them. That means every fish you keep and take home with you in the southeast, more likely than not, has some form of pharmaceutical in it. Now, these are trace amounts of pharmaceutical. It's not like you're just popping a pill when you eat a redfish. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's scary. And, and that and that should be scary. If that doesn't alarm you a little bit, you kind of need to come back down to earth. That means we've polluted the water to a degree that living creatures that breathe it, that, that, that is their air, right? Imagine if our air was so polluted that, like, trace amounts of I don't even know what to compare it to but we were finding trace amounts of pharmaceuticals in the air that everyone breathed it in mm-hmm. what's happening and you know fish it, it's food man like you know it's food like people eat this like bait fish and like there's a there's whole industries like we, we are very reliant on our oceans and our waterways and it just makes you wonder it's like what all is this in and what all is it getting into and, and what the crazy part is, I was able to ask uh, at a at a at a conference at a talk, you know, like directly with BTT. It was like, well, what can be done? And that's a loaded question. But it's like, what can? How can you fix that? It seems it seems like an insane problem. Mm-hmm. And it just came down to water filtration. If the state of Florida invests in better water filtration systems updated to now it would get out most of like almost all of it and i was just floored by the fact it was that simple of a fix i was like really 
yeah, if we upgrade this, it'll stop getting out into our waterways. You know, stop getting back into our water. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's insane. That's it. That's all that's stopping it. Um, and it, it's just, you know, man, this stuff shouldn't be in our water. I mean, that that should be alarming enough. Like, it, it's only it's a limit. It's a finite resource, right? Mm-hmm. We we can't. Yeah, at a certain point, things become destroyed beyond repair. It's not possible to fix. And I don't want that to happen. Yeah. I don't like one day when I die, I want the fishery to be healthier than it's ever going to be. And I want it to continue to be healthier. And it has nothing to do. Like, obviously I'm a fisherman. I love fishing. I'm going to keep fishing. I want other generate new generations to keep fishing. Um, but our water is important. Um, our, our water keeps our ecosystems alive. It keeps water flow. I mean, keeps everything alive you know if something goes down with the rivers in tennessee it's going to affect the everglades in some way that that that's how interconnected this stuff is if something were to happen out west eventually it would come back down and and, and have some sort of effect across the country if it was that detrimental um like i said there's no i'm not hitting the panic alarm button it's not like alarmist it's not supposed to be but it should scare you a little bit uh, just, just as you know, someone with empathy, <laughs> it should freak you out just a tad, uh, because what we're doing right now is outrageous. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely is slightly alarming. Um, and one thing I, th- I, I try and think about when I'm thinking about conservation, as far as fishing is concerned, is like it's just so hard. And this kind of goes back to your point of like. Yes, they're going to do a stock assessment down hold all the way down the east coast, and they might go in a creek and get a school of three hundred redfish and say, "Oh yeah, this you know more redfish than there's ever been." You know, hopefully that's not the case, but it's it's just I can't imagine how hard it is to get an actual assessment on the the amount of fish that are in an ecosystem because it's not like you know there's so much conservation surrounding elk and other kind of like you know game mammals I guess but you can literally see them and you can fly a helicopter you can find these herds you can have a really pretty dang good idea of how many there are and with fishing it's just I, it just, I don't know if it'll ever be that way. I mean, maybe in the future they have some crazy technology that can, you know, assess that stuff. But I just, that's, it's so concerning to me uh, when they do stock assessments and they're like, oh, yeah, it's fine. And I'm like, is that, it? It's tough. And it, it's a reason why relying on guides I think is a huge deal now believe it or not uh, Cam this is a huge controversy Uh, especially you can use Georgia as an example technically collecting data through that route through guides is technically a social science Um, it is not considered it's still science social science but it's considered different science than the data they collect when doing a study. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what just happened in Georgia 
where you had all these guides saying the problem. We've had a huge decline. Um, you know, for example, this is this is insane. By the way, in Georgia, you can keep five fish per person. The slot is fourteen to 20, 23 inches. Um, basically, what that means is if there's six people on your boat, you can collectively take thirty fish. There's no boat limit. Mm. And what that means is captains and guides, let's say you're running a, you know, two, four hour charters a day. You can take 60 fish. There's not a per day limit. There's a per boat limit. Mm -hmm. So if you go back in and you go back out on another charter, well, there you go. You can take 60. That's 60 fish for one boat. That's wild. That's wild. Um, and so Georgia guides got together and they were like, this is an issue. They've been seeing extreme decline, um, on the water. Uh, Georgia hasn't had a limit or any kind of change to regulations in over 30 years. Um, they basically what all the captains and even rec- the recreational anglers were saying in Georgia is that they're seeing a decline on the smaller fish. So anything under like 17, 18 inches, they're just mm-hmm. not seeing fish anymore, which, you know, that's your next generation. Like that's, you should be seeing a bunch of those fish. I'm, I'm sure you see this too. I would go in the creeks all the time. All of a sudden 40 rat rats come out of nowhere, like run by the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, that, that should be, you know, they should be around. There's not around in Georgia as much anymore. <clears throat> anyway, to get back to the point, um, social science, uh, CRD in Georgia, which is the Coastal Resource Division, had an open comment period where they basically sent out um, a survey to people who own saltwater licenses in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Like a random, um, 75% of people who took that survey were in favor of reducing the limits on all three limit reductions it still didn't pass mm. because when DNR, DNR took it, took that vote and had people show up and come talk like two or three different times in like town hall meetings, so, like almost like four hearings um, total. Um, and they had overwhelming support to change these limits. They basically say, cool, we're going to go present this to the board directors, which is how they make the change. Um, before they could do that, a politician stepped in uh, with a sign letter basically saying, you don't have the data to support this. Social science isn't a science. Um, and then he threatened in his letter to DNR that if they voted yes on this to change it, he would go to Atlanta and take away all of DNR's power to vote in the future. Um, and all of this also came on the coattails of him being at the meeting and mm-hmm. promising that no matter what, D- whatever decision DNR made, he would stick with because those were his constituents. Um, this is all extremely well documented. This isn't like a he said, she said. He had a public statement that he wrote out uh, and did that. that said he would like go with whatever DNR decided. They're the experts. And then immediately when they decided not how he wanted it to decide, he he sent that letter to DNR with had four or five other legislators sign it. 
um, in support and they and say, because right now in the state of Georgia, DNR can mm-hmm. create their own. They don't have to go vote on it. So DNR, if, this, if DNR deems they need a change in Georgia, they can implement it immediately. They don't have to go take it to, you know, like in South Carolina, that's got to go to Columbia. That's got to go get signed off by McMaster, the governor. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's voted on. Georgia, you don't have to do that. But they threatened to take away all of DNR's power, voting power. They were like, if you do this, we'll take that away to where you can't ever do that again. Which basically means they would, you know, not let it happen and take away their power. So because of that, DNR halted immediately and they haven't done anything since. Which I don't blame them. It's a lose-lose situation. Yeah. That, they take away your rights and they don't let you pass it. Yeah. You don't do anything. You don't do anything. It continues to be, uh, you know, you're just losing fish every day. What was his, uh, what, what is this guy's reason for not wanting to change? What, what is in it for him? Um, from what I've heard from other people, it has to do with some other political thing he wanted. By doing this, he, he was able to get some other thing that he wanted. Um, he, he's a, he's from Savannah. He's, he's a local guy, but mm-hmm. he, um, he's on one of the wildlife committees for Georgia. Mm-hmm. And man, it, it has been, uh, it's been tough for those dudes in, in that whole saga. That guy single-handedly shut down the entire redfish, uh, conservation effort, um, for a minimum of two years in Georgia by that, doing that one move. Yeah. Uh, and even you want to make this even crazier. I, I talked to, you know, GSAA, which is the Georgia saltwater angler association. And they're, they're the ones spearheading this whole thing. Um, they went and talked to all the legislators, legislators that signed that bill. Mm-hmm. Most of them didn't even know what they were signing. They just signed it wow. because of that. Oh, they just because signed it because they didn't, the, the because of the threat to lose all power. Well, it's just no, it's just how politics works. Oh, wow, One of your wow. guys, then he's like, "Hey, I need you to get on the bill." Then that's uh, that's just how it gets. <clears throat> you know, they you help someone, someone helps you. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, all they did was advocate and say, "Hey, next time, here's the issue. Next time, please advocate for you know Georgia redfish," and all of them are extremely receptive to that. So this isn't here to like bash these people either other than the one guy the one guy definitely is there's some not great stuff going on there um but man it's it's this was the politics part i was talking about earlier um it is extremely evident and unfortunately politics are extremely involved in fisheries as you you know i'm sure you've kept up with captains for clean water uh for years now you know no one's more hardcore than them when you talk about going up against legislature and it has been a long hard battle for them but it seems like, from what I can tell, the, the captains for clean water stuff is kind of moving in the right direction. It, it, it is. But this is, what, a decade down the road almost? Eight yeah. years? Eight years down the road now? Because 2015 was really when that all that stuff kicked off. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, <sighs> that's what I mean by, like, this is an instant change. This stuff does <laughs> not happen. Oh, it does not happen at all but the fisheries needed to happen quick 
Yeah, I know. Everything's slow, man. I mean, every shelf is not good. Yeah, it's so slow. And in one thing that I I hate when people say, at least here in North Carolina, well, really anywhere, when they're dealing with kind of the political side of this stuff, and they're like, it's just never going to change. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's not if you don't do anything about it or like, you know, if that's your attitude, then (laughs) of course nothing's going to change. You know, like, yes, these things take a very freaking long time. I mean, North North Carolina is a great example. I mean, we, we had, um, I think it was a game fish bill. Uh, Like mm, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And they got really close to, uh, I think, getting getting redfish classified as a game fish. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I think you couldn't keep them commercially. I don't know what it was on the recreational side. This was kind of all before I was really involved, you know, on the fisheries stuff. And in uh, the way that I understand it, and someone could very well put me out to be wrong, but the way that I understand it is they got pretty dang far down the road on getting it changed for redfish. And then they were like, oh, this is going well. Let's add speckled trout and flounder. And as soon as they did that, it was like, nope, that's too much. The whole thing's denied. Yeah. And and ever since that happened, a lot of people were just like, it's never going to change. And I'm like, man, you just can't, you can't take that perspective if you really want things to change because to your point these things can take so long and not just 10 years not just 15 years it can be 25 years and uh i just think you just have to really have that like don't give up attitude no matter what because like i'm with you man i when i die I really hope that the fishery is better than than what it was when I when I was alive. Because it just it, it's a, it's such a shame in my opinion. Our our fishery is good here in North Carolina, but I will say it's challenging. It can't it, that we have we can have world class fi- world class fishing for speckled trout and for redfish and for other species too, trout flounder included, but there, there's by far, uh, there's definitely challenges as well. Challenging days, challenging weeks, if you will. Um, but just talk to someone that's 70 years old and has fished here their whole lives and ask them what it was like when they were a kid, because it's a much different fishery than what it is now. Again, not that our fishery is by any means bad, but it is. it can be challenging, just like anywhere. Anywhere can be challenging. This goes for every state, though. You know, just listen to, like, Millhouse podcast about these guys tarpon fishing in, in the Keys back in the 70s. Like, it was a different fishery, you know? So, yeah. it, to me, it's just like, I don't. We'll, we will never get back to 
what that was because there's just way more people that are fishing now. So it will never be what it was because there's just more boats on the water, more people fishing, and not that that is by any means a bad thing. But I think you can get to a point where you have a very um, a, a very good population of species uh, that uh, that fishermen like to target in every state. Absolutely. And, you know, I agree with everything you said except for one thing. Um, it absolutely can get back to what it was. Fair it enough. Fair enough. It absolutely can. It depends on what are we willing to sacrifice to do that. Even with the increased fishing pressure, even with more boats in the water than ever, and that's all, like you said, that's never going to change. Um, it's only going to get worse, actually. Um, as the world population grows, more people, they I mean, they've, they've proven that more and more people are, are live on the coast. More and more people will live on the coast. Um, there's more boats sold than ever before. There's more watercraft in the water ever. And it's not going to go down. Um, but my really good friend, Wesley Locke, that, that is something I said the same thing to her a year and some change ago. And I was just like, you know, Unfortunately, I just don't think it can ever get back to that. We can try. And she stopped what she was doing instantly and was like, no. <laughs> it, it can. And it depends on what we're going to do about it. She was like, I'll be damned if I live my life and don't attack that full on and don't try to change it. And I was like, that's awesome. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. It's just completely true. We have the ability to change it. We have the ability to create change. Um, Captain's Clean Water proved that with uh, Bill 2508. I don't know if you remember that. Basically, they slipped in uh, they slipped in stuff that would take away rights uh, for water management in the middle of the night. They were alerted by it. The next day, they had a um, hundred or so guys, or if not more, um, in, in Tallahassee to protest the bill uh, and it got killed. They effectively killed it. A bunch, just literally a bunch of fishing guides and, and people because they showed up and they got in front of legislatures, the, the, the legislature and, and, and spoke their part and opposed it in person. Um, and like, and that's your point of saying it's, it's never going to change. Like it sounds dumb. Like it seems impossible to fight these battles, but if you show up, you vote these people in the office. These people get scared when a bunch of angry people show up demanding they change something at their doorstep. These are the people who vote them in. And if people are that riled up about something like that, they definitely aren't going to vote you back into office. And these people want to be in office. Trust me. Um, it's their whole job. It's their career. Unfortunately, um, that's how <laughs> politics work. You know, limits yeah. exactly work like they should probably, but that's a whole other thing, I guess. Um, you know, but you, especially these local politicians, these aren't your senators. These aren't your long-standing guys who have been in office for, you know, 20, 30 years necessarily. This startles them when you do stuff like this because they can lose their job. And sometimes you got to remember that you pay the, you got to remind these people that you pay their bills and you vote them in. So if they're not going to do what you want them to do, you can change that. Um, now, with that's not enough gonna, people. 
with enough people. You, one person yelling or sending an email doesn't do anything. Right. You know, a bunch of people show up to oppose something like that. Because I'm telling you, no one shows up to this crap, man. No one shows up to hearings. No one shows up to the Senate stuff. Because oh. no one knows. And they always schedule it on like a Tuesday at 9 a.m. Like, who has time to go to Tallahassee at Tuesday at 9 a.m.? It works regular. No one. You don't hear, you barely hear concerned citizens talking at stuff like this. And a lot of times when they do go and talk at stuff like this, they're just labeled crazy by people. That's what they tried to do to the captains for clean water um, crew. They literally tried to gaslight them and tell them they were all insane pretty much when they talked up there. But they had such a force behind them that they came back a second time and then voted. They voted down because they thought they could just bully them off stage. Yeah, I mean that's really what happened. They thought they could just put them down and bully them off. But it just they had too much momentum. I mean that's what pe- these are the tactics people use. Oh, for this is sure. what they do. I mean it, it, they want they don't want this stuff to pass. And once again, I don't think everyone's evil. I don't believe that at all. You know, I think. For the most part, I've never met someone who doesn't want clean water. But unfortunately, in politics, these people have to play a game to keep themselves afloat. They have to vote on stuff a certain way to keep their, you know, to get what they want as well. Like, it's just how it works. So the only power we have is to show up in droves and demand that something get changed. Now, most of the time, like what's happening in Louisiana right now, um, it finally kind of has passed the new redfish regulations. Um, it's not passed yet, but they all finally agreed on limits. The first limits got denied. Um, so what they originally wanted was a 55% reduction uh, on a 12-year rebuild timeline. And that was going to be a three-fish bag limit, 18 to 24-inch slot, and no take for bull redfish and no creel. So like, you know, or a creel limit, sorry, no, no limit. Which means, you know, anyone doesn't know what that means. It means your guide or crew cannot take fish as well. Like, they don't count. Um, so if you're a guide, you can't keep fish. That was what they proposed. Um, what they're actually going to go with now um, is a three-fish limit with an 18 to 27-inch slot. Um, no harvestable reds and no guide limits. So... That's not what they originally wanted. That's not the original proposed bill. But they had to give up a little bit to create some change. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality of it. That's the reality of this game. That's a starting point. That's still a victory. That's still a win. Um, it's not a 55% reduction on a 12-year timeline. But it's like it, now it's a 43% reduction. You know, like more like a 30-year timeline. Okay. Well, that's a starting point. Now, that's not voted in the office yet. It doesn't get finalized. It has to go through the House and Senate um, in early 2024. But it's looking good. It's looking good now. Like, that should be able to get through, barring nothing crazy happening. But, you know, that's the point. You know, a lot of angry people showed up. A lot of people spoke what they wanted to speak, and they were able to create change. It wasn't the most drastic change that everyone, you know, we can all agree. It's like the less fish you take and the faster you do it, the population is going to increase. That's just, this is very basic. Um, so when you allow a higher slot limit and more fish to be taken and all that stuff, it's going to affect it differently. 
but that's still a huge victory in Louisiana. And that should be thought of as that. It's not, it's not a loss. Um, so that's the mentality you got to have. Little victories. This stuff takes years to fix. And it's going to take years to get through legislation. That doesn't mean we should give up. Definitely doesn't mean we should give up. And a lot of people do give up. Yeah. I'm with you there, man. I, I think it's you just just that no-give-up attitude is what changes things. Even in a lot of, you know, down years, I think it's you just got to keep pressing forward. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that, that Louisiana thing, that, that notice of intent was shot down completely. The first one. Yeah. I I actually remember that. They, they even went out of way. The oversight committee over that literally went out of their way to say it was unacceptable. In, um, only minutes into the hearing and they, you know, pretty much basically had made up their mind. At that at that meeting before anyone even got to speak, that thing was it was it was dead on arrival, and this was this was they thought this was going to pass. They, they had the support, you know. So it's 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 a tough world out there. They didn't give up. They didn't just say, "Dang it, we tried," um, and walked away. It, there's still plenty of, of room for that, and you know we're seeing this change happen across the entire southeastern United States. South Carolina, we changed our limits back in 2018. Um, And you know what? They changed it because state biologists uh, documented a a declining trend in our population. Um, And also, you know, reports from guides and local anglers. That's where they got their data. And the SCDNR uh, took a closer look. They did an assessment. And they decided uh, red drum, the population was experiencing an overfishing and overfishing by definition is taking more than is being re- reproduced. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we know we went from, a uh, three, three fish to uh, two fish per person and no more than six per boat. And that was in July of 2018. Um, the previous was three fish and a no boat limit similar to Georgia is right now. So if you had six people, three fish, you know, you can keep way more than, than you really need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still it's still the same slot limit though. In South Carolina, it's fifteen to twenty three inches is your slot. So we have a, we have a way lower slot. So I, I think that also helps um, more fish get to a breeding size in South Carolina than I think other areas. Because uh, a lot of the other states they do up to twenty seven inches you can keep. And that's I do think do. that. Yeah, I think I mean fifteen to twenty three. That's a small window. You know, yeah. that's a way small. And you know, since twenty eighteen. Um, that seemed really promising, but like you said, then COVID happened. A lot of people moved to South Carolina. A lot of people got on the water population boom. And I feel like that those limits have now evened out with the population growth. Um, at the time that was great. I thought that was awesome. Heck yeah. That's going to make a a big change. Everyone was very happy with that. But boom, you know, two years later, huge population growth. South Carolina has exploded like most Southeastern states you know population grew like crazy mm-hmm. there boats everywhere uh it's gotten more and more busy and you know i think you even bring it down i would be okay to bring it to a one fish per person limit i don't i don't think someone needs more than one red fish per person personally but 
that that's just one of those things. You're seeing it across the board. Georgia's trying to get stuff changed if they can. Louisiana's getting after it. Florida has a pretty good grasp on things, of course. Um, I know you guys are battling, like you said, gillnet issues up your way. And um, commercial fishing causing a lot of issues with the redfish. Um, but yeah, you're pristine. I, so I, I do think that on both sides of the coin, I think there's issues with commercial fishing. And I think there's issues with recreational fishing here in North Carolina. Just to be clear, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many states still allow gill netting. I think we might be one of the only ones on the East Coast yeah. that still does it. Yeah, you know, um, the only people I talk to that I know that even use gill nets is for research. Um, yeah, that's how scientists do a lot of their stock. They use gill nets. Yep. And they, they hand fish. Um, gill nuts are not great. Not not great. You can, you can kill a lot of fish really quick. Um, you know, another issue that a lot of people run into is, is lack of enforcement on the water, too. Uh, oh you can't... You, Dude, we you have zero. Leather. We almost have zero enforcement on the water. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, in Charleston, too, I, I never saw anyone i never saw dnr i never like i never saw anyone i mean only on like the fourth of july or like memorial day they'd like be out or like right. the coast guard be around right. every man i never saw dnr out in the water and they were barely ever at the boat ramps um uh, that doesn't mean they're not out doing their job but they, there's just not a lot of them yeah you know? exactly i just don't i don't think there's a there's not enough of them exactly they have a, a large area to cover. Uh, and you know what? So what yeah, oh, yeah, they have a huge one. Um, the, some of the guys in Georgia uh, even asked about that. They went to DNR and they were like, what if we started a nonprofit to raise money and we donated this money to you guys for uh, law enforcement officers on the water? And they're like, that's absolutely legal. That can be done but you better give us a hundred thousand dollars an officer pretty much. Mm. And because you train them, they got to go through all this, you know, qualifications. They then have to have a spot, a slot for them and need to pay them a salary every year. Yeah. You want to add 10 people? It's a million bucks. Million dollars. <laughs> and that's every year almost. Yeah, that right. doesn't mean each guy is making six figures, but there's Austin ball. <laughs> There's all this stuff oh, involved yeah. with with having and employing a, a, a law enforcement officer because that's what they are. You know, you know, it's still law enforcement, um, and it's like that just kind of puts it into perspective. It's like we just don't have the funding, and maybe the money is there. It's, you know, I think we spend a lot of money on dumb stuff, but trying to get that money to that—that's a—that's a tough ask. That's a, that's a tough ask to a lot of these, you know places politicians getting getting money back around that's another issue just lack of law enforcement you know maybe the limits are okay but people are abusing it and, and not enough people are scared to follow the limits or you know make sure they're not doing what they shouldn't do on the water um i'm sure you and i have both seen people take over slot fish and under slot fish and just fill a cooler with a bunch of rat reds i've seen it 
Yeah. Um, and no one does anything. I, I mean, I've seen, you can only report so much. If, they, if they're not there and active and doing like right there, they can't do much. There's not much they can do. Um, and it's not a knock on them either. I know they, they don't have a lot backing them. Um, and they're busy. And they got a lot of land to cover. And there's not, there's not, you know, hundreds, thousands of them. There's not thousands of them. Um, it's hard to have that, pay for that, patrol the water, and, and, and you're not going to save everything. But that is an unfortunate part. It's just way understaffing in, that, in those areas. Yeah. I mean, I've been fishing here my whole life, and the I have maybe been stopped by an officer five times. Right. Regarding, like, Show me your cooler. Yep. In probably another five times on 4th of July or Memorial Day, just to be like, you know, is anybody drunk? <laughs> yep. Uh, or is the driver drunk, and rather. Um, exactly. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's so interesting. This whole con- this whole subject to me is is really interesting and I, I think there's so many different avenues you can you can go down uh, or rabbit holes rather that you can go down when you're thinking about this stuff but what I would you know uh, just to kind of start wrapping this up I think what I would urge anyone to do is just think about how many more people are fishing now and just that it, uh, just since COVID, right? Kind of, kind of to your point. When you, a lot of people moved to southeastern states and towns when when COVID happened, out of the big cities and um, bought boats and started fishing. And more power to them. I mean, don't blame them there whatsoever. Um, but just there's there's been just an, a massive increase in pressure on fish, and uh, I just urge you to kind of think about that a little bit before you, I don't know, before you fill your entire cooler. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, yeah. because the regulations haven't caught up with that, in my opinion. No, they definitely haven't. Um, so that is all. That's kind of my parting thought, I guess. Yep. Well, you know, I'm with you on that. It's um, it's unfortunate, and I, like I said, I do not want to take away anyone's right to keep fish. If you want to go out and, and fill your fill the slot limit and fill the cooler limit that you are legally allowed to do, you can legally do that. Um, just because you always can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Now, if you go out and you do that, and that's how much fish you need. And I'm not saying want how much fish you need, then I will never look down on you at all, ever. I will never judge you for that if that's what you need. Uh, but for most people, they don't need that many fish. They don't. It's almost cheaper to go to the supermarket and buy fish <laughs> than go out on a red fishing trip and catch red and come back just ask alone. So that, that's that's just something to, to think. Like I said, to think about. I don't want to take away anyone's rights on anything. I want people to enjoy these fisheries. I want them to use it. 
I love eating fish. I love catching fish and, and eating them. I mean, it, it, people should do that. I think it's an enjoyable experience. But I also think with something like redfish and our game fish are, are so precious. And they bring in so much, you know, you want to even talk about revenue. They bring in so much to these states and, and are so important to our coastal waters. And I would hate to see that dwindle and, and slowly disappear over time. I do not want to be the guy 30 years down the road saying you should have seen it when I was younger. Yeah. I don't. Golly. Yeah. At all. I want the kids, I want to be like you. I want to be, actually, you know what? I do want to be saying that and talk about how bad it was. Like you guys just, <laughs> it, it sucks. This is amazing. That's, I want to flip the script there. And I think it's possible. <clears throat> younger generation of anglers, which I'm, I'm associated with, I'm young, um, who they're focused on this more than they are fishing tournaments or, you know, doing other stuff that was really important in the past. So that's just my party thought. Um, you know, I really appreciate you asking me on to talk about this. This is something I'm extremely passionate about. Um, and I, I, I love to talk about it. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, I love to talk about it too. I just always like to think about ways that can, you know, leave the fish, leave the fishery better than it was. Um, so, uh, you're the perfect guy to, to have on for that. And of course what we're, we will definitely have you on again here in the future. And, um, either to talk about converse, uh, conservation again, or to talk about videography or photography or, one of those things or just living in Florida. Um, so I really, really appreciate you taking the time to get on Dylan. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. I, th I think maybe next episode we film, um, you just come down here in person to me and we spend a, a tarpon <laughs> day on the wall. Talk about that. Oh, I've been dreaming about that for a while. So we'll have to make it happen. We'll make that happen for sure. All right, Dylan. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Cam. Thanks, man. Yep.